All right, I'll invite you to have your Bibles handy. As we speak today on the rapture of the church, we'll be going to several passages of Scripture. I'm going to do the rapture of the church in three parts, a three-part series. And this is how it's going to play out. The first week, this week, I'm going to talk about the doctrine of of the rapture and one of its companion doctrines as it relates to our views on the rapture, and that is the doctrine of imminence, of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Those are the two doctrines we're going to cover this morning, and we're going to biblically define them, biblically defend them, and kind of just lay out our understanding of these two doctrines. I do not intend in our time together today to talk about when we believe the rapture of the church is going to take place. That will be next week. I'm simply going to talk about, can we, from the scriptures, understand that there will be a rapture of God's people? And that's what we're going to talk about this week. Can we, from Scripture, understand that the return of Jesus Christ should be understood to be imminent? And we'll we'll define that. That is what we're going to talk about this week. Then next week, I'm going to establish what we believe, which is that uh, we believe that, that at Legacy Baptist Church, that the rapture will take place prior to the 70th week of Daniel, prior to those last seven years of tribulation. And then after that, that third week, I'm going to cover various different views. And we're going to discuss why those views exist, where people are coming from with those views, and uh, some of the elements of why we we disagree and where uh, their views are, in fact, stronger in certain areas than our view as well. And I want to give a, a week to that, just as I'm giving a week to our teaching. Now, it's still imbalanced, right? I'm giving more time to what we believe than what others believe in that. I'm going to give several theories on that third week. But the fact of the matter is... As we look at the various ideas, thoughts, theories regarding the tribulation and regarding when the church will be raptured and how the church will will be, be dealt with and how the world will be dealt with, if you come from a different foundational understanding of the Word of God, if you have a few differences in how you see the scriptures or how you understand the teachings of Jesus Christ, it is going to fundamentally change your understanding, particularly of these end times doctrines. And it's not necessarily uh, cut and dry that we can just straight out explicitly say everything in the scripture points toward our view because there are some real weaknesses to our view, things that we have to explain in a manner that is perhaps not fully satisfactory in all points. But when we dig down, and this is why we started where we did three, not three months ago, six months ago, uh, with three months of understanding the foundations of interpretation and the foundations of our doctrine, that's why we began where we began. Because if we believe everything that, that we said for those first three months, if we found our understanding upon a dispensational perspective on the the clear distinctions between the church and Israel, on these various elements, on on our understanding of the kingdom and what the kingdom is and that the kingdom is yet to come. If we found our interpretation on all of those things, then a pre-tribulational rapture, pre-70th week rapture is de facto. It is what we will come to. And that's why we're there. Does it mean everything is clear, clear as crystal? No, it doesn't. Is prophecy ever clear as crystal to anyone other than the generation going through it? No, it's not. 
And so we'll talk about that. And I hope that what it will do is it will, it will make you more familiar with what some other people believe, but not so that it casts more doubt in your mind on what we understand and believe, but rather so that you can feel a stronger understanding of why it is that in spite of some of the things that we don't understand, we still hold very strongly to this idea that the Lord is going to come prior to the 70th week of Daniel. These differences between these views are somewhat irreconcilable. It's not as if we're just going to sit down, walk through the scriptures with somebody who doesn't agree and, and say, oh, I had just never considered that scripture before. It's about the foundational doctrines. It's about the foundational differences in what, what we understand and how we understand it. And those differences are going to come out over the next several weeks. So our journey to understand this doctrine will begin, uh, the doctrine of the rapture this week, our journey to understand that doctrine will begin in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what we would believe to be the first time Paul reveals the mystery of the rapture. When we talk about a mystery in the Bible, a mystery is a secret of God regarding his purposes that was not made known to man, is not made known to man apart from special revelation, and was not made known until a particular time in history. So a mystery is not something that can simply be derived through study, that you take doctrines and you put a bunch of doctrines together and you come to a conclusion and that conclusion is a mystery. Uh, A mystery is some truth that's left completely unknown and that a person does not know until such time as God divinely reveals it unto man. Throughout the New Testament, we have uh, various concepts that are called mysteries. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 13, as he spoke in parables, that the kingdom was a mystery. And he said that he spoke in parables specifically so that he could reveal to his followers the mysteries of the kingdom, but that those who did not have faith would not understand the, the kingdom because they would not understand the parables, the mysteries of the kingdom, as reflected in Matthew 13. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, of a mystery. He says in Romans 11:25 that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so one of the mysteries that was not revealed until the New Testament is that God would blind the hearts of the nation of Israel. They, of course, having rejected Messiah, then God imposed upon them as God always does when one rejects the word of God, supernatural blindness for a time so that the fullness of the Gentile world can come in. That's a mystery. You will not find that in the Old Testament. You will not find that in Revelation. Even knowing now what we know, you cannot piece together simply from the Old Testament the mystery that that Israel would, would experience blindness so that the fullness of the Gentile world would come in. That's a mystery. And that's what we mean by mystery. Paul speaks of a similar concept in Ephesians chapter 3 speaking of the mystery of the Gentiles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with Israel, the promises of Christ. That's a mystery, something that's not mentioned in the Old Testament at all, but that comes into its own uh, as God reveals it in the New Testament. Paul gives another mystery in Ephesians 5, the mystery of Christ and his church, as he speaks of husbands uh, loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands, and that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. And he says, this is a mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. Paul speaks in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 of a mystery. He says, the mystery of Christ in you 
our hope of glory. He says that was a mystery, something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. You couldn't piece it together through the Old Testament. You could see shadows, you could see glimmers, but not until New Testament revelation could a man ever come to conjure up or understand the concept that Christ would actually abide in us. In each of these cases, several more throughout the New Testament, we see mysteries, previously unrevealed truths, which have been revealed now through Christ and his apostles to this final age of the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is speaking about the importance of the resurrection. We've explored this passage within several contexts in the past several months. We talked about it on Resurrection Sunday. We talked about it in our Luke series in the evening, a little while after that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is defending the importance and the reality of the resurrection. The importance of the resurrection as a doctrine of the faith, the importance of the resurrection unto our redemption. But then he teaches about the nature of the resurrection. Picking up in verse uh, 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So Paul teaches that we will bear the image of the heavenly just as we bore the image of the earthly. We are right now in the image of Adam, right? We are in the image of the earthly. We are in the image of the mortal, of the corruptible. Our, our, our bodies, like Adam's, will, will decay. They get old. They, they're frail. They get sick. They get injured. And Paul says, in the very same way that we bore the image of the, hev- of the earthly, we will bear the image of the heavenly, the incorruption. And it is within this context that we read, picking up in verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul tells us here of a mystery, and, he call, and, and this mystery is what we call the rapture. We do not actually find the word rapture in our Bibles. We find the word catching away, a catching away. And that word catching away is translated into the Latin as rapere, from which we get our word rapture. So it's actually based upon the Latin translation. It would have thus been established the doctrine of the rapture at a time when Latin, of course, dominated the church. And so they call it the rapture. But what Paul does speak of here is a catching away. He says that we will not all sleep but we will all be changed. The word sleep here is literally to sleep, to like, you know, what my, what, 
you know, what, what, what we all do every night, we go to sleep, right? Lord willing, uh, every night, um, we, we all get sleep. And that's what, that, what this word means. I was going to make a joke about people sleeping in church, and then I thought, thought the better of it. Um, but as was common in the manner of the New Testament, that word sleep is also a polite way to speak of death. So we do this, right? We do this as well in many ways. We do this about death. We don't speak of people dying because the concept is bitter and unpleasant. Instead, we speak of a person passing away or going home to be with the Lord if they're a believer or not being with us anymore or going home to glory, meeting their final reward, going to see their creator. All of these different ways that we talk about death because we are seeking to take death and we're seeking to paint it in in a different light. And that's not necessarily disingenuous because indeed, for we who are in Christ, to die is to go home to be with the Lord, is to see our Creator. Is, uh, it is all of these things. And so it's certainly not a problem to, to highlight those elements uh, as it relates to death. Well, in Hebrew culture, uh, in, in, in the Jewish world, one of the ways, one of the common ways that they would talk about death is they'd say sleep, right? And the idea within Jewish culture was to acknowledge that 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 there is an awakening, that there is a resurrection. They expected a resurrection. Uh, we know that, that even uh, the Orthodox Judaism in the days of Christ knew and understood the resurrection. As a matter of fact, that was the big problem with the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, whereas the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, right? So uh, the, the concept of the resurrection was well established, and to that end, they didn't say death, because death is so final. They said sleep until such time as the resurrection. And that was the idea behind using this word sleep. So Paul is using it in that way here. We will not all die is what Paul is saying. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. We won't all die, but we'll all get our resurrected bodies. We will not all die, but the earthly will give way to the heavenly. We will not all die, but the corruptible will give way to the incorruptible. We will not all die, but mortality will still give way to immortality. So it is, Paul tells us that though every believer in the gospel will be a recipient of the change that is a bodily resurrection, as it were, a resurrected body, not everyone's going to die first. They'll still get the new body. To that end, maybe we shouldn't call it a resurrected body, right? Because not everyone's body will be resurrected in that sense. Uh, their bodies will just be, the, the, the last generation will just have changed bodies. Everyone else will receive resurrected bodies. So instead, Paul teaches that there's going to come a moment, and he says this moment will be at the last trump. We don't know quite what that means. There's theories about that. We'll talk more about that next week. The trumpet will sound, and in a matter of moments, a twinkling of an eye, that's a blink of an eye. Every, I've always, I always was always bothered when we would preach or when I'd hear a message on this, because then I start thinking about blinking, and that gets really annoying. But, so now you're all going to be thinking about blinking for the next few minutes, so enjoy that. But the idea being that in that moment, how fast we blink, so much so that we don't even think about it, right? You, you don't even see it. It doesn't even bother you. It doesn't even get in the way of what you're doing to blink. And as we, we do that so quickly, he says, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, at that last trump first... He says, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. So there will be a resurrection where the dead will rise and will be given incorruptible bodies because this mortal must put on immortality. And then, 
those that are alive will be changed. And we, he says, shall be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So he says, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This glorious truth finds what we might consider to be the first revelation in the epistle of 1 Corinthians in regard to the rapture, that there will be a generation of the church which will not die, but will simply be ushered from their mortal bodies into their immortal bodies. Now, there's another important concept here regarding the rapture which we need to emphasize. Within this passage, Paul is making it very clear that the bodies which we receive in Christ at his coming, are not the same as the body which we have upon this earth. Yes, Jesus' tomb was empty. His body was gone. His heavenly body shared the likeness of his earthly body. But as we studied Luke not long ago, we made careful note of the fact that Jesus was able to do things with his heavenly body that are not normal, right? He was able to appear and disappear at will. He was able to, uh, there was a, a locked door and he was able to appear on the other side of that locked door. So while Jesus had a physical body, he was able to eat with them. He was able to drink with them. He allowed them to touch him. He was flesh. He was blood. Yet at the same time, his body was different. It was a heavenly body. It was fitted for a heavenly existence. The body that hungers will hunger no more. The body that once felt pain will feel pain no more. It is a fundamentally different body. Though it's still flesh and blood, though it might look the same, though it might be the same in many respects, it is not the same. It is a heavenly body. And this is important for us to understand simply as a matter of practical theology. There are many faith systems today uh, which teach explicit rules about how to treat the dead. And one of the primary reasons why they teach explicit rules about how to, to treat the dead is because they want the dead to remain fitted for the resurrection. One of the primary ways that this plays out, particularly in liturgical denominations or, or liturgical systems, is that they do not want you to cremate the body because they say if you cremate the body, then there will be no body for a resurrection. Therefore, the resurrection is invalid for you because you have cremated your body. This is, this, this is not doctrine. This is not sound doctrine. The Bible says that we will receive a fundamentally different body. It doesn't matter if you're cremated. It doesn't matter if you're buried. Uh, the people that have been buried in the ground for 2,000 years, uh, their bodies wouldn't be much good to them anyway, Right? So th this is not a thing. This is not a problem. It doesn't matter if you're buried in, in the church cemetery or if you're just buried in a hole in the ground somewhere that nobody knows about. No, God, will, you know, God doesn't have to find your body, these sorts of things. None of that is in the Bible. The Bible says that there is a, fundamentally, a fundamental change, a different body, as a point of practical theology to say that we should not cremate the body because then it's not a candidate for the resurrection or it needs to be buried in a church uh, um, cemetery or whatever the case may be, all of that misses the point. The point of the resurrection is not that we need to preserve our bodies. We don't need to be embalmed, those sorts of things. The point of the resurrection is, in fact, the exact opposite, that we are going to receive a new body, a different body, a body fitted for a heavenly existence to this end, the vessel in which our years of this mortal life are lived entirely finishes its function the moment that the Spirit leaves it. Once the Spirit leaves the body, that body's 
function is finished. It's not needed anymore. We'll get a new one on the other side of eternity. Back to the mystery. Paul introduces the Corinthians to this mystery in this text. But it's also something which he told by letter to the church of Thessalonica. And we find Paul's teaching in regard to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, we read this. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Once again, that's dead. That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So Paul is writing to a church that is going through, a, going through devastating persecution. The church in Thessalonica was being deeply persecuted. You can read about it in the book of Acts that Paul was, was, was heavily persecuted there. He was run out of the entire region by the, by the Jews in Thessalonica and that the people that stayed there, the people that lived in Thessalonica, endured a great amount of persecution and a great amount of affliction. So these people, they're tired, they're weary, and, and this had led them into some unique concerns, some concerns that perhaps may not have come up in the hearts of other believers of this generation. And let me tell you what I think they were thinking. This is my own personal theory on this. Please don't take this as, as doctrine. However, I think that it's probably what they were thinking here. This was a church which was invested in the Lord's return. Any church that's going through persecution is more invested in the Lord's return, right? It's one thing when we're sitting here in our plush seats, comfortable uh, uh, seats, air-conditioned building on a Sunday morning, and we're all generally relatively healthy and things are generally well and we're uh, generally uh, um, wealthy and not impoverished and we all have roofs over our heads and we all uh, ate food if we chose to this morning. And if we didn't eat food, it's because we chose not to this morning, right? Uh, because you know that there's going to be another meal. You don't have to worry about whether the next meal's coming. So you can actually choose not to eat meals and still be okay because you're that confident that more meals are coming, right? This is a pretty plush place and time in history. But if we are meeting and uh, the threat of death is over our heads just for meeting. If the threat of death is over our heads just for being Christians, if we've lost our jobs, if we've lost our, our financial well-being, if we've lost all of these things because of being a Christian, then you go to bed at night saying, I wonder if tonight's the night that the Lord will just take us home. You go to bed at night saying, I wonder if tonight's the night that God is just going to relieve me of this, of, of, of this mortal body and bring me home to be with him. And so they had this unique perspective and perhaps a little bit of unique urgency. Well, it seems to me that as they heard Paul's teaching when he was there, they received it with joy. And one of Paul's teachings was that the Lord was going to return for his own. And the Thessalonians were hoping in this fact. They were, they were, they were uh, relying upon this fact that each day they said, the Lord's returning, the Lord's going to return, the Lord's going to return, the Lord's going to return. But after Paul left, something happened. And we know this from the text. People in the church started dying. Whether that was from old age or whether that was from persecution, people in the church of Thessalonica started dying. And this was something that they'd not been taught about. I believe that the church of Thessalonica was quite convinced that none of them would die before the Lord came. That they would all, that the Lord was coming so soon that he was just going to come and he was going to catch them all away. And so now we have this interesting thing. See, the Old Testament taught about when Old Testament saints would be resurrected. Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the 70th week. But what about 
What about those that are in Christ? What about the church? What's going to happen to the dead in Christ? See, they did not anticipate the dead in, they're being dead in Christ. They anticipated the Lord returning. So now there's this problem. See, what about the dead in Christ? We didn't expect that that was going to happen. And now they were sorrowful for these dead in Christ because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. When would they, would they just be resurrected at the end of the 70th week? What, what would happen to them? Would they take part in the promises of the church or not? Was, were the promises of the church uh, solely tied to the generation that was alive when the Lord would return? See, because they thought the Lord was coming. Now, just as a side note, we'll establish this deeper in the weeks to come. If Paul had taught only one event surrounding the Lord's coming, where all of God's people from every generation were resurrected and raptured at the same moment, the church at Thessalonica would not have any of these concerns. If Paul had not taught a separate rapture for the church than for the Old Testament saints, Paul, then, then, then this chapter would not be necessary. The answers would already have been. But the church of Thessalonica understood a fundamental distinction between the church and the Old Testament saints. And because of that, they have this concern. What about the dead in Christ? So their thought process might go something like this. Christ is returning soon. When Paul taught this, we assumed that Christ would come before any of us die, but now that's not happened. So what about those that are dead in Christ? And whatever their speculations were regarding their loved ones, it had driven them to sorrow. And Paul did not want them to be sorrowful for their dead loved ones in Christ. Sorrow is for them that have no hope. We who do have hope in eternity... For us, there's comfort, there's peace, there's joy, even in loss. So Paul gives a conditional. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, then we believe that those who are dead in Christ will be brought back with him at his return. This teaching is actually not about the rapture. The teaching of this passage is about the resurrection. But this is what Paul taught, that the dead in Christ would join Jesus at his return and notice here, we're specifically talking about the church, the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ would be those that died having accepted Christ as their Savior. What we find from the Scriptures, without controversy, as I mentioned already, is that the resurrection of the Old Testament saints does not happen until the end of the 70th week, until the end of the period that we characteristically call the Tribulation period. We read about this in Daniel chapters 11 and 12 at the end of the 70th week. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, and every one that shall be found uh, written in the book, and many of them that slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So again, we'll discuss this passage at length at a later date. But what we find here takes place in the Daniel timeline after the 70th week, at the end of the 70th week, this time of tribulation such as never been seen before. And after that time, the Bible says that there will be a deliverance and a resurrection for thy people, that being Daniel's people. From this, we understand quite clearly that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the 70th week. 
And again, we'll talk about timing and why, why we don't believe the church uh, is with this over the next two weeks. But Paul continues in 1, Corinthians, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he says this in verse 15. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. That word prevent means to go beforehand or to proceed. So the text tells us that those who are alive at this coming of the Lord will not get their resurrected bodies, will not be taken before those who are dead in Christ. Rather, the order of events that we see these things take place is found in verses 16 and 17. And so the Bible says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the order of events at the coming of Christ is given here. First, Paul says, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, the trump of God. Uh, Paul talked in, in 1 Corinthians 15 about the last trump. We would presume this to be the same idea here. The dead, the Bible says, in Christ shall rise first. Those who are dead in Christ will be given their resurrected bodies. Then, secondly, Paul says, those which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Meet the Lord in the air. And the dead in Christ, of course, will already be there in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, Paul concludes, shall we ever be with the Lord. Through this, Paul hoped that God's people would be comforted in relation to their loved ones, that their loved ones would be a part of this resurrection, that their loved ones would be a part of the church's resurrection, and that, in fact, their loved ones who have died in Christ would be there for them when they get there because they will be taken first. And then the, those that are alive and remain will be caught up together, will be taken. And there we see again the rapture. Through these two passages, I hope you can see that, that the rapture of the church is something that, that is quite clear in the Scripture that there will be a rapture of the just, there will be a rapture of the church, that the Lord is coming back for His own, that there is going to be a generation of the church that will not see death, but will rather be taken from mortality to immortality, will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the, in the blink of an eye, at the last trump, there will be a catching away following the resurrection of those that are in Christ. In this we establish the doctrine of the rapture. Again, I'm not talking about when it will happen. We know what, uh, you, you know what we believe on that. I'm going to defend that next week. The week after, we'll talk about other ideas. But just simply put, at least, Lord willing, we can all agree on this. The rapture is something that's going to happen. There will be a rapture of the church. Now let's talk about a second doctrine. And this doctrine is more needful for us as it relates to our par particular perspective. And that is the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. The word imminent means close at hand, impending. The idea behind the doctrine of imminence is this. I give you a definition. That there is no sign or event necessary to precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus could come at any moment and expects his church to be ever vigilant 
and living in light of his possible appearance. Now, once again, how we understand fully the doctrine of imminence is going to depend on where we stand as it relates to the rapture and such. There are uh, th- those that believe in a mid-trib, pre-wrath, p- post-trib rapture do not necessarily deny the doctrine of imminence. They simply disagree about how imminence plays out, how it is that, that uh, the concept of imminence is applied. But what we will see is that Jesus regularly warned about his coming throughout his teachings. And he warned that it would be swift and it would be without warning. That his people should know full well that the day is coming. But that they needed to be constantly prepared for when it might take place. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be signs that it is at hand. My wife gave birth to our son last Sunday morning. In the days prior, there were some things that we knew. Number one, we knew that she was in her 42nd week. She was on her way to 42 weeks. We knew that that meant things were, had to, I mean, we kept saying, well, it has to be soon, right? <laughs> yeah, baby can't wait forever. And second, she started uh, having contractions for an hour, maybe two hours, and particularly uh, for her to try and turn the baby around. The body was attempting to, to do that, so her, her contractions were a little bit sharper in the days leading up. So Wednesday, she was feeling them. Friday, she was feeling them. And we were thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. Maybe we're going to have the baby today because she's starting to feel the contractions. Are they going to get worse? Those pains are signifiers that things are going to happen at some point. And as those pick up, you know that the day is coming. But you still have no idea. We still have no idea when the baby was going to come. Until my wife wakes me up at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday and says, I've called the midwife, baby's on his way. Now we've got to be ready. Now, if we had not prepared, if we had not had everything, because we did a home birth, right? So if we had not had everything in the house ready, if we didn't have all of the, the, the elements and the, the, um, the things that we needed, if we had not made preparations for the children and for meals and for all of this, the baby would have caught us totally unawares and we would have been unprepared and it would have made things a lot more difficult. But we'd been preparing. We knew that it was coming. We'd set aside the supplies that we needed. Uh, we had meal preparation plans. We had a list of meals on the, on the fridge. I, I knew where everything was. We had things in the freezer. We had, I had a contingency plan for church. I had a, a, a sermon all picked out that I wanted you to listen to. Everything was ready. And so when it, when it came to pass, we simply had to implement the plan because we were prepared. Now, there was no, there was nothing that had to come to pass in order for the baby to come. The baby simply had to come. But then there were signs that things were getting closer, not just timing, but contractions and such. This is a very similar concept to what we see as it relates to imminence. Can we see what we could call birth pains of the coming of the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely we can. And you know, every generation of the church has seen to some degree these birth pains. Persecutions and apostasies and heresies and evils. And uh, we, we begin to see it more and more as, as the generations progress. It's much, it makes a lot more sense now to think that the entire world will be able to see things or hear things, Right? with digital technology and the fact that a person can be watching 
uh, someone halfway across the world on their phone or uh, listening uh, through, through their headphones through their phone or watching on a computer through the internet so that the entire world can see things at the exact same moment of time. That clears up some prophecies for us, doesn't it? But would there have been some other means had the Lord come prior to this technology coming about whereby God's word still could have happened? Absolutely, right? And so nothing had to happen. Nothing has to happen. Everything is in place. And the Lord's coming will take everyone unawares. Will be something that will happen in a moment and could happen at any time and will, will not be preceded by such dramatic, obvious events that everyone will say, okay, the Lord's coming is obviously here. That's the doctrine of imminence. And I'm going to go through a couple of examples that seek to establish this doctrine. And I want to make clear that these examples are not always explicit as it relates to their audience. In some examples, what we see in the Bible is Jesus warning the unbeliever that he could come and that they need to get right with him. In other examples, he is actually warning his own that he is coming, and so we need to be faithful. And the Bible is not always completely explicit. Jesus is not always completely explicit when he's speaking of one as opposed to when he's speaking of another. But I do want to give you an example of each this morning in relation to whether or not to accept Christ, in relation to whether or not to actually get on Christ's side to accept the Messiah. Jesus gave a parable to the Jewish people in Matthew 25. And beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 25, he said this. He said, Then shall the kingdoms of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Now as I read this parable, it is important to understand that parables are not allegories. We talked about this copiously, pervasively, in our Luke passage, or in our Luke teaching, right? Parables are not allegories. In an allegory, everything has a one-to-one -one example. Everything in the story has a, it has a one-to-one -one correlation to some sort of lesson in real life. Parables are not that way. Parables intend to teach one main point, and the other things within the parable may represent something or may represent nothing. And the point of the parable is simply the main point. That, and everything else in the parable exists simply to support the main point of the parable. The primary point of this parable is that these virgins knew the bridegroom was coming. And five wise brides had positioned themselves to be ready for the bridegroom. Five unwise brides had put off their preparation, figuring they could do it later. But the problem is they didn't know when he was coming, 
and there was no warning of his arrival. And when the bridegroom came, it was not at a time that was conducive for them to make hasty preparations. If my wife and I had waited until the baby, until my wife was in labor to make preparations, well, if she was in labor at three in the afternoon, maybe I could have run out and gotten what we needed very quickly. But if she's at labor at midnight, maybe the stores that have the things I need are closed. When the call came, the women did not have time to trim their lamps. They didn't have time to go get oil. They had to be ready at the moment of the cry. This is the only point. This is not a parable to say that people, that, that, that Christians who are not serving will be left behind. The point of this is not that all ten were believers and five of the believers were faithful and five were unfaithful and so the five were left behind. That's well beyond the scope of this. This is not what the parable is teaching. The parable is teaching that all ten people knew that the bridegroom was coming. Only five of them invested in his coming. The other five said, well, maybe I'll figure it out on the day of. This is the unbeliever who says, I'm going to live for myself today and maybe in ten years, twenty years, then I'll live for Christ. I'll accept Christ. Maybe in 10 years, 20 years, then I'll get right with God and I'll, I'll get serious about the things of God. But I have some sins on my bucket list that I want to get out, get done with first. God says, be warned because you do not know the hour. And when he comes, there will be no time left for preparation. This is the doctrine of imminence. The idea that the bridegroom could come at any moment and when that call goes out, there's no time to get things in order. There's no time now to make your preparations because the bridegroom has come. Now, there's, a, there's several other parables. In Luke chapter 12, and this is the last one I'll give you, Jesus gives a parable very clearly to believers this time. Very clearly to, if we could say it, those five wise virgins. This would be to them. This would be to those who have accepted Christ, who have invested in his coming already. And Jesus says this in Luke 12, beginning in verse 36. And ye yourselves liken to men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good men of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. So once again we see a par parable here, not of ten virgins this time, but of servants who wait for their Lord's return as he returns from a wedding. And the idea is that their master is gone, and uh, typically wedding feasts would take place over uh, many days, sometimes even weeks, right? And so these servants, the master went away from the house, and they do not know when he's going to return. Maybe the master will not feel well, and he'll leave the wedding early, and he'll be back in a day. Maybe he'll stay for the duration of the wedding, perhaps a week. Maybe he will be invited to stay by the people longer than that, and he'll end up staying for two weeks, three weeks, a month. And the servants simply do not know. What that means is that as good servants, they, can't, they have to be ready at all times. They have to be constantly ready because their master might return at any moment. When the master returned, they needed to be ready to go. 
It would be a shameful thing if the master returned. And let's say he returned early because he wasn't feeling well. And he is knocking on the door of his own house and he can't get in. And his servants are on the couch eating potato chips. And they are not ready for his return. And they are not ready to wait on him. It would be a shameful thing for a servant to be in that condition when his master returned. Maybe maybe the house was dirty. It hadn't been cleaned well. The servants are unkept. Maybe even absent. These things would be shameful. And Jesus says that those who are ready for the master need to be ready at all times and not just during the day. He says, what if the master were to come on the second or the third watch in the middle of the night? They need to be ready with food for their master. They need to be ready to open the door immediately when he knocks. And Jesus says, blessed are those servants. And again, this is not an allegory. We might be able to spiritualize many aspects of this parable, but the point is singular. Given to his followers, be ready, because the master could come at any time. This is but two of many teachings of Jesus on the matter, one which commands much of his time in his teaching. Now, some might argue that these warnings of imminence should all be understood in relation to judgment and judgment alone that they are not for the believer having to do with the Lord's swift return, but rather for the unbeliever warning of impending judgment. But the writings of the apostles, and especially that of Paul, of Peter, excuse me, seem to indicate otherwise. It seems that both Paul and Peter and James were looking for their Lord's return and were quite convinced that the Lord could return at any moment And we're quite convinced that the Lord will return before their lives ended. We mentioned already in relation to the church of Thessalonica that it seems as though the church of Thessalonica was confused that people were dying before the Lord returned. So when we read the first chapter of Thessalonians, it's no surprise that they would be concerned about those that died in Christ. As Paul summarized to them what he taught them, Notice what he says. First, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through 10, the Bible says this, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were ensamples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So Paul describes his time in Thessalonica, that they received Christ even through affliction. And Paul taught them two things. First, to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And second, to wait for his son from heaven, right? Number one, he says, turn away from your idols. Turn to God away from your idols. That's the definition of repentance. And number two, he says, be waiting for the return of the Lord. Be anticipating the return of the Lord. It is difficult for me to believe anything other than that this church was convinced that the Lord was coming for them soon when I read this. But we read other words of expectation as well. What about Paul's Teachings to the pastor, Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 and 14. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, 
who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the, until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the expectation in Paul's words here. He calls Timothy to remain pure, but notice he doesn't say remain pure until the day of your death, does he? He says remain pure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems as though Paul expected the Lord to return, doesn't it? It seems as though Paul was expecting the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. James seemed persuaded as well. James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It sounds like James was anticipating the coming of the Lord, doesn't it? Sounds as though James was expectant that the Lord could come at any time. That when Jesus was teaching to his servants that they need to be ready to open the door for their master, that as Jesus was teaching to the Jews that they needed to receive their Messiah, and not be like the five virgins who didn't have oil at the time that the son of uh, w- that the bridegroom would return. So Paul says to Timothy, "Establish your heart and be pure until the coming of the Lord." So James says, "The coming of the Lord is drawing near." Even more so, perhaps, the most convincing and compelling of all these is Peter who wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll read verses 3 through 4, and then we're going to jump to verse 8. Peter says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deny imminence. They say, Things are as they've always been. Where's this promise? We skip to verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and here's the analogy again, the same analogy that Jesus gave to His disciples about servants being ready because the Lord will come as a thief in the night says, but the, Lord w- but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Peter says that those who are in Christ are looking for it because it's drawing nigh and we are hastening unto it. We are turned toward it. We are marching toward it. We are hasting to it. The coming of the Lord draws nigh, James says. And so we're looking for it we're hasting unto it. We're living in light of it. This is the doctrine of imminence. Jesus said, you do not know what day or hour the Lord will come. Peter said, we're looking for the coming of the Lord. James said, we're looking for the coming of the Lord. Peter said, we're looking for the coming of the Lord. 
They were looking for the coming of the Lord. And every generation of the church, if we're rightly related to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we're rightly related to the Word of God, ought to understand that we are looking for the coming of the Lord. That these things can happen at a moment's notice. That there will be no time to readjust our lives. There will be no signs. There will be no wonders that will explicitly, definitively, prophetically say, now we only have three and a half years left, or four years left, or seven years left. We know it because Antichrist has been revealed. We know it because now he's sitting on the... Uh, uh, he's, yeah, be, we, because he's committed the abomination of desolation. Look, if the abomination of desolation happens before the Lord, but, but before the, the, these warnings of imminence come to a fruition, then imminence is not a thing. <laughs> if I can count down days, months, years, then imminence... Imminence loses its distinction. Can I put it that way? All of a sudden, we don't need to wait for the coming. We just need to wait for the sign that is coming then is on the horizon. So once again, I've not sought to define all of the timings to establish the full context within which imminence is taught. I fully understand that, that some people believe imminence believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ and work it into a theology and a timetable of the rapture that is not pre-tribulational and that they're satisfied with that. And I can understand that. In the same way, we have to try to figure out how the last trump is the rapture when the last trump is not the last trumpet if we're pre-tribulational rapture folks. In the same way, we have to figure that out and we've been able to reconcile that in our hearts and minds, perhaps. In that same manner, other people have to uh, reconcile imminence and they've been able to do it. But what I'm saying is, in the purest form of what Jesus taught, it is very difficult to reconcile the teaching of imminence with the idea that there are signs, explicit prophetic signs, prior to the Lord's second coming. And that's why we believe imminence to be an important doctrine Peter, James, Paul, Jesus all taught it. And I believe it's got a pretty strong doctrinal foundation. Now, just before our application today, I would like to do a few whatabouts. And as a matter of fact, I might even just end with the whatabouts today. In regard to eminence, these seek to challenge the idea that we should not actually be thinking about Christ coming as an event which could take place at any moment. Rather, that there are definitive signs. Pastor, Daniel said that the temple had to be destroyed. So, if the temple had to be destroyed, then why would Paul or Peter think that the coming was imminent if the temple was still in existence? The temple was not destroyed till 70 AD. Could Christ have come before 70 AD? The reason why this matters is because there are things which the Bible tells us will happen after Jesus' resurrection had not happened. Jesus said in Matthew 24 the temple would be destroyed. What about Israel becoming a nation again? 70 AD, Israel ceased to be a nation. Well, then, 
Could the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ actually be imminent between 70 AD and 1948 when Israel did not exist? If Israel does not exist, how can the events of the 70th week of Daniel take place? What about the church ages? I, I, I um, talked about those last time, whether you invest in that or not. If you think that there's any validity to the church ages, well, then doesn't that destroy imminence, right? Because we had to get through all seven of the church ages to get to Laodicea before the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And of course, if we regard Revelation 2 and 3 as prophetic, then that, that, does that throw a kink in imminence? And I'm going to say the same thing that I mentioned two weeks ago. I had a couple people come up and ask me about it afterwards, so I want to make this clear. Imminence has nothing to do with history and God's plan from God's perspective. And everything to do with history and God's plan from man's perspective. Within God's plan, we may still have a thousand years to go at this point, right? Or we, the Lord might take us home today. Time has nothing to do with God. Time is entirely a relationship as it relates to man. To this end, imminency is not a problem with God. It's a problem on man's side. How can we say that these things are imminent when things have not, taken, uh, have not come to pass? Well, before 70 AD, could it not be that in the matter of a 24-hour period of time, there could be a revolt in Israel, Rome could destroy the temple, and then boom, the Lord comes at that moment? to where within the course of just a, 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 a instantaneous small period of time, all of the things could go into place? Absolutely. Could it not have been in 500 AD that the Lord began to do a wonderful work and in 500 AD Israel was made a nation again and then boom, the Lord came? Of course God could do that. Just because we don't see everything in place as maybe we would think it should be in order for the Lord to come does not mean the Lord could not come because He can make those things happen. Imminency is not a problem to God. It's, 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 not, a, it's, it's not about God. It's not a God perspective thing. It's an us perspective thing. God says His coming is short, but it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth. That's not short, which is where 2 Peter 3 comes in. That a thousand years with the Lord is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. That's not intended to give us license to believe in theistic evolution. That's way outside the context. That doesn't even make sense. But what that is intended to do is to tell us that God can look at the scope of history. He can see a 3,000-year span, something ending at the end of that 3,000 years, and say that is shortly to come to pass. Because time is not a problem to God, and time is not a factor to God. And we need to be ready. Just because something didn't happen at a certain time in history doesn't mean it could not have happened. Does not mean God could not have made it to happen. Simply put, we look back now and say, wow, it makes a whole lot more sense that the Lord would come now because in 1948 Israel became a nation again. Wow, it makes a whole lot more sense that the Lord would, be, would, would come now because there's actually infrastructure set up for the entire world to have a government system and a religious system. And these things are, are more possible now than they've ever been in history. But certainly not the first time it's been attempted. Did not Constantine attempt to unite the world? Did not Napoleon attempt to unite the world? Did not Hitler attempt to do the same? There have been plenty of attempts at one world governments. But until the Lord says, go, they will continue to fail. 
Just because the Lord's return seems closer due to one event or another, geopolitical and, and the like, does not mean God has no power to change it at His will. To this end, no prophecy exists as a threat to God's plan, only as a clouded window into it. And this is what we believe about imminence, that nothing stands between the Lord's return and God's people, that in every generation, God's people have been hasting to, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have, based upon the, the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the affirmations of Paul and James and Peter, we have all confidence to believe that the Lord could come at any moment, that we need to be prepared moment by moment for the Lord's return, that there will not be time at the Lord's return for house cleaning, that I will not be able to see these things come to pass, look in my Bible and say, oh, okay, we're within the last three years. We're within the last five years. We're within the last seven years because of this and this and this. Now I better get my house in order. There will not be time for that. The Lord is coming and he's going to knock on that door and the servants need to be ready to open the door. The house needs to be ready. Things need to be ready because the Lord could come. This is the doctrine of imminence. I'm going to stop there for today, but I do want to give you two more verses. I'm going to flip through a few here. This is back in Luke 12, as Jesus was teaching them that the coming of the Lord will be as a thief in the night. In this respect, that he'll come when people aren't expecting it, like as a thief would. And as he admonished his servants on this, this is what he said in Luke 12, verses 42 and 43. The Lord said, Who then is a faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. What I skipped in application today is simply this. The reason why the doctrine of imminency really exists is not for us to establish our doctrine on the rapture. Pfft, whatever. You want to believe a different... Honestly, you, you want to believe a different understanding of the rapture? I get it. I, I believe you're going to be in contradiction if you believe all the other things that we preach. But at the end of the day, the Lord's coming and He's taking us home. But the doctrine of imminency the primary point of the doctrine of imminency is not so that I can establish my timetable of the rapture, though I believe it does that. The primary point of the doctrine of imminency is that you and I would be busy doing today. If the Lord could come at any time, should we not be busy? One of my daughters is a very tender spirit for this. She's told me on so many occasions, the Lord could come at any time? Yes, well then let's go tell some people. Let's, let's go share the gospel. Let's go share the gospel because what if God comes before we're able to tell people? That's what the doctrine of imminency should do for us. That is what the, 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 the compulsion should be in our hearts. It's you spending any moment of your day making choices as to what you're going to do and looking at that sinful decision and saying, would I want the Lord to return while I'm doing that? No, I wouldn't. Well, then I'm not going to do it. It's you deciding what you're going to do with your time. Deciding what you're going to say, what you're going to think, how you're going to act. It's you deciding whether or not you're going to devote your time to the church or devote your time to yourself. 
It's you deciding how important raising up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord truly is. It's not you selling all of your possessions and going sitting up on a hill, looking up into the sky, waiting for Jesus to come. It's you getting busy. It's you deciding that there's not enough time for you to waste your time. That there's not enough life for you to waste your life. Because if Jesus came today, what would you have to show for it? If you went into eternity today, what would you have to show for it? Would you even be in Christ? Would you stand before him through, through the blood of Jesus alone? Would you stand before him redeemed? Would you stand before him and be able to say, Yes, Lord, I was a servant who was doing. That's what the doctrine of imminence is supposed to do for us. However, it will help us. Next week, it will help us as we seek to establish the timing of the rapture. And it will lay for us some clarity as it relates to our system of interpretation and the rapture itself. We'll get into that next week.